deglobalization is going to be a theme. Trade wars, deglobalization. We've had an era of globalization which has created incredible growth across the globe. That is probably coming to an end and deglobalization and protectionist world and trade wars is going to be something we're going to have to face. A trade war de-escalation, low inflation around the world and an uptick in global manufacturing activity all bode well for emerging markets. But South Africa will miss out if we keep scoring our own goals. At the start of the year, we convened a panel of experts from Investec Wealth and Investment to share their views on the outlook for South Africa and the world economy in 2020. Our guest panelist, political analyst Ralph Matecha, gave his take on what lies ahead for the complex South African political landscape. The panel included Chris Holdsworth, Chief Investment Strategist, and Mark Romberg, National Wealth Management Joint Head. You can listen to everything the panelists had to say on this Investec-focused podcast. The discussion was led by Ronel Hutchinson, a Portfolio Manager at Investec Wealth and Investment. Ralph, in 2019, SA politics was dominated by interest groups rather than the broader interest of the South African public. Do you see that changing in 2020? Well, uh, there's been concerns that uh, we do have politics that seems to be concentrated uh, among the elites, where we see the power jostling, but it doesn't result in any substantive change or shift uh, when it comes to policies. I mean, we are in a situation where almost everything is urgent, and one wants to see the uh, power brokers within the ANC, the dominant leaders within the ANC, to be putting their aside their own personal, uh, I would say, uh, maneuvering, and to be thinking about uh, the urgency of dealing with issues here uh, across the nation. And I don't see that coming to an end. And uh, we've been talking about factionalism within the ANC, and that factionalism, it has become that interest group, as you are talking about. And interest group, it is people who are just contesting power for its own sake. And you look at it, uh, they are not attending to the main issues that I think uh, the nation is calling upon them to attend to. The question of power, for example, uh, the question of crime, the question of high unemployment. I mean, if you go to the election, you have free election, you have a robust democracy such as this, people need to ask, what is it that this serves at the end? I mean, you cannot just say we have a, a robust democracy that failed to attend to the key issues. That is why continually you are seeing uh, the ANC as a political party drifting away from the people as this interest group seems to be pulling the party in all different directions. I don't see that changing. I see that becoming more and more institutionalized in uh, public institutions and so forth. I mean, you can just close your eyes and, uh, and, 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 and listen to who is speaking. You can actually guess which corner, political corner, do they come from within the ANC. That is quite unfortunate. The question then becomes, are there any positives that South Africans can cling to going into 2020? If there is any positive, is the decline of illusion or delusion among South Africans. South Africans are more real. Uh, I mean, I listen to people in various community stations, uh, some in various regions. Uh, you go to various platforms where people speak in their mother tongue. People that are not like me, people whose profession is not to look into these things. And you can see that uh, they are no longer, they no longer have those illusions that mm. things will, 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 will change in, in an immediate term. And I think for me, 
it is, it is the first sign where the nation is beginning to critically look within the NCN to say that, look, we want to critically evaluate this party. Don't give us the history. Don't give us 108 years. We know you've built houses and so forth. But where we are now, you cannot turn the lights on. People are saying that, look, uh, we are interested in this fourth industrial revolution. For, for the IR, we are interested in the smart cities, but we want to keep the lights on. People are critically speaking out there. And for me, it says that if people are beginning to reflect, it's positive because they are the people who need to bring NC leaders to task. I can say what I say, you know, sunrise up to sunset, but the reality is that if the core voters of the ANC are not critically evaluating the party, we are in trouble. And the positive thing is that now I'm seeing the core voters of the ANC beginning to ask critical questions about this party. That might get the NC to understand that uh, this issue that we are talking about are actually urgent. Because when you talk as the middle class, you talk as whoever, the NC just dismiss you. But I don't think they can dismiss their core voters now who are in those rural areas. I mean, a young person who wants to go to work and they are being told that, look, the restaurant will not open, there are no lights. That's when you know that the mistakes of the NC are now as real as the force of gravity for the core voters. That's how change is going to happen. Change is not going to happen because we stumbled upon a great leader within the NC. It is going to happen because of the reality of the NC losing power. And that reality will actually be pushed by that awareness by ordinary people. But I think, that, uh, to add to what Ralph said, Renal, I think there were some pockets of hope towards the end of last year from a political perspective. You know, you started seeing prosecutions of certain people who were involved in corruption. You started seeing seizure of, of assets of some of those who were who were in the corruption scandals. I think the the placing of SA into business rescue was a very strong message in, in terms of our country that possibly government cannot deal with this matter and it has to go to business rescue practitioners who could effectively take whatever steps were necessary. And, you know, in some ways there was a a fight back against the unions, you know, in terms of the SAA strike and the placement of SA into business rescue post that, to me was a positive signal that we were starting to see some signs that said, despite the political pressures and all the issues that Ralph raised in terms of the internal ANC pressures, you were starting to see some signs that government realised the severity of the problems that had, that had been created and needed to address them. So prior to the, the load shedding, which came probably as some, somewhat of a surprise in December, I think you, you, I think you had started to see some pockets of, of positive news out there um, and some hope that hopefully this, this continues into, into the new year. I think if you look at Cyril's campaign when he came into power, the key issue was garnering investment for the country as the, the platform for better economic growth. Chris, I think the question is, do we see this beginning to bear fruit in 2020? Look, it's very early days. Um, it's, it was the second round to raise capital from abroad that they tried now. Um, if we look at what came through from the first round, roughly 10% of what was promise came through in the first year, which is quite good. Um, and now we'll see in the second year, but early indications from what we said before and the commitments we said are that foreigners would be willing to invest from the promises that have been made. But at the same time, locals are not really willing to invest at the moment. If you, if you chat to local corporates, if you chat to local private individuals, um, confidence is very low for all the reasons that we've just spoken about and, and a few others. And I think it is going to take some convincing to get locals to roll up their sleeves and start investing. And, 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 you know, I believe that ESCOM will be resolved. I mean, uh, the question is... To fail. It will, it, the question is, 
how much of a crisis is it going to be? Because uh, there is no doubt. I mean, there is a strategy at play here. The business rescue of SAA, you mentioned that. I mean, when, when the lights are off, ideologies are, you know, people push aside ideologies. When the lights are off, people, we get into a crisis mode. And when a crisis mode sets in, uh, people tend to yield to the president to see that, look, help us. But the question is, can we really continue? Should we wait for everything else uh, to get to that crisis mode? I mean, uh, at what cost? We all know that uh, if we allow crisis to precipitate, it becomes too costly. And the president seems to be believing that, you know what, let it get to that crisis. Once it gets to that crisis, then it will give me more mandate to be able to intervene. I mean, we should learn from SAA. We should not wait for ESCOM to fail to pay salaries before we come up with reforms at ESCOM. And the unions, uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, they need to be outed, that look, you are the unions, but you are not the entire society. Uh, not, people are crying about unemployment here. As time goes by, there will just be fewer people. The unions themselves are going to lose members because if there is no, there are no jobs, who are you going to enlist as, that, as members of the union? So I, I'm just worried about what, what is it that constitutes a crisis that justifies intervention? We are getting used to a point where things have, have to be to that, have to reach that apex. And you just never know if it, if it has reached apex that one can say now it will induce a sense of urgency on the side of policymakers. We cannot operate this way. Chris, turning to you and the global economic backdrop, we saw economic conditions deteriorate in 2019, yep. yet geopolitical tensions rose. What are the key issues for investors going into 2020? There are probably three to keep a close eye on, at least, but three major ones. Um, the first is the trade war. It's an apex priority. Um, it appears that we're pretty close to a phase one deal being signed off between the US and China, uh, aiming to be finalized round about the middle of January, with presumably a phase two and phase three coming through over the next 12 to 18 months. And one could probably tie this de-escalation into the fact that there is an election coming up in the US, and Mr. Trump wants to be re-elected, and presumably as a result, he needs to reduce any risk that there may be to growth. It is the economy stupid, as they say in the US. Um, so we should expect a de-escalation along between the US and China over the coming 12 months. But the, the trade war isn't over within 12 months. And the Trump administration has indicated that once they're done with China, they're gonna take a close look at Europe. And Europe has said, well, if you do that, we're gonna take a close look at you guys too. Which means from a trade war perspective, while there is likely to be an interim de-escalation, it's going to be with us for some time should Mr. Trump be re-elected and land up being president again. But that's the first one, trade. Um, the second is inflation. Uh, the last few years, we've seen very little sign of inflation pretty much anywhere in the world, South Africa included. And that's been very helpful for central banks that have been able to provide stimulus and financial conditions have loosened across the world. At the first sign of inflation, we remove that space from central banks. So it's something we need to keep a very close eye on. Should inflation start to pick up, central banks will no longer be able to act in the way they have been doing so before, and we would need to be more cautious about the global outlook. But we're not there yet, and there are no real signs of inflation picking up at the moment. You've got decent wage growth in the US, but that's not inflation. And you've had food prices picking up in China because of the swine flu, but that's not inflation either. That's a once-off event. And aside from that, there's not a lot of inflation out there. So that's a good sign. So you've got trade war escalation, inflation remaining low. The third factor we need to keep a lookout for is manufacturing. 2019 saw a steep decline in manufacturing activity in a number of parts of the world, particularly Germany. 
And what we've seen of late is that expectations from German manufacturers now are at the highest that they've been in six months. So it looks like things are starting to bottom out and improve. Manufacturing activity in China has started to pick up as well. So it seems that we're at the end of that slump and we're starting to improve. And if you put that all together, we've got a trade war de-escalation, inflation remaining low, manufacturing activity picking up. It points to an improving global environment and one that would traditionally be very helpful for emerging markets. So we may well as South Africans be getting stimulus from abroad, given that we don't seem to be able to provide a lot for ourselves. You touch on a point there regarding the global manufacturing slowdown, with China and Europe being the major export partners for South Africa. What are the prospects for SA specifically in this context with this possibly improving manufacturing outlook? Yeah, very helpful for South Africa. So in China, you've seen a reduction in required reserve ratios. You've seen an increase in bank lending. Uh, credit impulses have been improving. And that traditionally leads to an improvement in growth. And in China, what that means is more construction, more use of steel. So steel prices now are at five-month highs. Iron ore prices are at five-month highs. It's very helpful for South Africa. We export a lot of iron ore. We import a lot of oil. Oil is remaining contained. Iron ore is doing very well. And we get immediate export benefit. Helps the currency. It helps our exporters. It helps from a tax perspective. It helps in a number of ways. So you're saying that we've got global, potentially global tailwinds but we still have SA-specific issues, one being ESCOM, the other being the debt and a possible downgrade and a deteriorating growth outlook. Chris, how do you put this all together and give investors you know, a perspective that they can go into 2020 with? Yeah, so the first on electricity, as we heard earlier, there are some severe issues. Um, the latest message, message coming out of ESCOM has been that we should expect some sort of supply restriction for the next two years and while they do deep maintenance on the various plants. Now, there are plans afoot to reduce that time period and to reduce the scale of load shedding over that period, but we have to see those plans finalized. It may well take some time. In the meantime, we should pencil in electricity being a binding constraint on growth in South Africa for the next two years. So that's the first problem. Um, the second is the state finds itself in a very tough fiscal position, partly because of bailouts for, for ESCOM and other SOEs, partly because nominal growth has disappointed in South Africa, so tax revenue is disappointed. And the net result of that is that in February, we should pencil in a combination of a tax increase, and however it may come, it may be the fuel levy, it may be at an outside chance some form of VAT increase, and simultaneously a reduction in planned expenditure. Austerity for South Africa. Now that itself is not good for growth. So in addition to the concerns about austerity, affecting growth, they might not be sufficient to satisfy the requirements of Moody's. So we may well land up with a downgrade from Moody's in the first half of the year, putting South Africa into junk status with various negative consequences. And if you put that together, despite the global outlook, it would appear that you should be quite negative in South Africa. You've got electricity problems, you've got austerity coming and the possibility of a downgrade. But at the same time, consumers in South Africa have been very cautious, worried about losing a job, for instance. So we've been saving. Credit health in South Africa is the strongest it's been in several years by various measures. We've also got the possibility of a rate cut, and we think there's likely to be one in the first three months of the year. And you've got this global tailwind coming through, and most importantly, in a number of instances, domestic prices are reflecting bad news. As an example, our bond market, our 10-year bond yield trades at about 9%, inflation sitting at about 4 There are not many countries in the world that have a gap like that. And so it wouldn't take much to provide a positive surprise for domestic 
assets. And despite the concerns about South Africa, there may well be opportunities for generating returns in South Africa, but it is largely going to come about due to global factors leading to improvements in South Africa rather than us and a self-help story. You raise an interesting point because over the last few years, South African investors have been taking a lot of their assets offshore, benefiting obviously from RAND weakness and the good returns being generated from offshore assets. How do you see this playing out in 2020? Yeah. I think there's always a case for having money abroad, irrespective of your view of South Africa. Abroad, you've got more than 10,000 investable stocks. In South Africa, we've got just over 100. If you want biotech, you have to go abroad. If you want exposure to Tesla, for instance, you have to go abroad. Amazon, you have to go abroad. So simply from a diversification perspective, there is always an argument for going abroad and finding things that you cannot get in South Africa. It makes no sense for us to have 100% of our exposure here. We already have our salary exposure, our homes are here. There always is an argument um, for, for going abroad, and I don't think that changes. And, and on austerity, Chris, I mean, you know, when I look at uh, the crisis that you're facing, we, we could achieve a lot by that austerity. I'm concerned about the consensus around that. I mean, if you look at uh, uh, alliance politics, uh, tripartite alliance, the big challenge is to attain consensus on austerity. Because if, if you have the economy that is as depressed as we, we, we are experiencing, you need COSATO that will understand and that will be more willing uh, for, for some of restructuring at SAA that might mean that some people might have to lose their jobs or uh, that's just the reality. And the challenge here is that if you cannot undertake such austerity measures, you, Moody's is on your case, no doubt, they're breathing down our neck, but also, I'm thinking here, it will deteriorate the social conditions. I mean, we should be realistic as well, that uh, socially you have higher number of people that are unemployed, you've got protests. I've heard some of the companies actually being concerned about just the street protest. Some companies who you would think that they would want to invest a lot. One of the auto manufacturers had spoken that, look, we are concerned, we want to invest more, but South Africa is becoming difficult to navigate. It appears as if politicians are not really in charge. When, when politicians lack the legitimacy mm -hmm. to actually say to the broader nation that, look, let us all take these austerity measures. Let us all uh, take the pain now so that we can grow the cake later. When they don't have that legitimacy, you are really much in trouble. And for me, you could achieve those things by demonstrating that you'll fight against corruption. You know, arrest a few people make example of a few people, reinstate confidence in the public institutions. And also, as leaders, uh, I mean, as we're speaking now, NC members are celebrating in, in Northern, show some level of restraint. Show people that you are with them. Mm -hmm. So that at least people don't come out saying that, look, we're the ones that are supposed to take the pain of austerity, while politicians are demanding, or some people at ESCOM are demanding bonus. For me, you can achieve a lot without necessarily necessarily putting, you know, undertaking measure efforts. You deal with the crisis of confidence among politicians. Mm -hmm. And I think if you can just achieve that, that gives you a leeway to experiment with some of those austerity measures. And the market may well respond very positively mm -hmm. to austerity measures for the reasons you've said, that it shows that they're able to implement them and also it shows that they're, they're taking the situation very seriously and perhaps there's a chance later on that debt to GDP starts to improve which is quite a different situation from a number of other places around the world where austerity has been implemented and markets haven't liked it. Mm. It's because we're very much on the cusp of potentially being downgraded that it may well be perceived positively. Mark, 
In your conversations with clients, what are the dominating themes in your conversations? Well, I think a lot of what we've spoken about, Ralph, Chris has said before, are probably the dominant themes. I think from the African economic and political landscape is something which dominates a lot of conversations. The, the ESCOM issue and what that means going forward and is there a solution um, really has led to a distinct lack of confidence in the South African public and, and investors. And that is a major concern for, for our clients and investors. You know, for the last five years, in, you know, you've seen really good returns globally. But from a South African context, you've seen equities and risk assets underperform, you know, just cash and and, 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 and in many situations, maybe inflation to some extent. And that's a concern. So you need to see investors, investors want to feel that they're getting rewarded for taking on risk uh, from an investment perspective. And that leads on to internationalization of assets. So Chris, Chris alluded to the fact in terms of there's always a demand for internationalization of assets, just from a diversity opportunities, you know, broad, uh, you know, set. But I think those discussions have probably been accentuated over the last number of years due to the economic and political landscape in South Africa. I think from our perspective as, as investment managers, I think, it, you know, we've been, this has been a concentrate, uh, constant theme for us. You know, we haven't panicked. Funnily enough, you know, the RAND has been fairly resilient through this process, you know, and we speak a lot about it. But you take the, the RAND over the last five years, it has not been a, a RAND weakness issue that has actually affected our, our clients. It's more, more been a fact of the lack of growth in the South African investment environment. So this has been a constant, you know, strategy of ours to internationalize our clients' portfolios, to, to, to you know, to broaden their opportunity set, to give them exposure to economies which are growing at a far stronger rate than, 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 than South Africa. But I think, you know, that, that has helped. But I think from a confidence perspective and a, and a mood perspective, I think, you know, the, the, the essay and economic and political landscape, and particularly the ESCOM issue. The ESCOM issue has a major issue in terms of the mood, the, 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 the fact that, that how, how we feel as Africans, you know, in terms of that. I think you raise an interesting point, Mark, but the reality is that the global backdrop is so uncertain. We've got geopolitical tensions which are rising. We've got countries that are issues that are idiosyncratic to countries, which South Africa is just another one of these issues. Um, Chris, how do you think global investors see South Africa in the context of the global opportunity set? You mentioned earlier on our attractive real heels. Um, is South Africa an attractive destination for the global investor? It very much depends on the asset class that you're looking at. Um, from bonds, you know, categorically we can measure in different ways. The bond market is pricing in a downgrade and perhaps some further bad news beyond that. Um, so you could argue real yields are high in South Africa relative to peers. And so the bond market is certainly attractive from a global perspective. For equities, it's a bit more tricky. Um, for a long time, South African equities carried a reputation of doing very well in a poor macro environment because of strong governance within the corporates. Yeah. And, and that image has been shattered due to several... Um, corporate scandals in South Africa. And it's going to take a long time to rebuild that sort of reputation, if we can at all, which means that we need to substitute that with growth. You will attract foreign investment in the, in the equity market when you're growing faster. So should there be a rate cut? Should we see these reforms coming through? Should we see some relief from the electricity position and growth starts to pick up in South Africa to, I mean, 2% would be a lot. At that point, we will see foreigners starting to scratch and sniff and look at our equities. But until then, they're not really going to be interested in that space. But our bond space, probably. 
I think Mark, Chris raises an interesting point around governance. We're seeing that globally this theme of ESG is on the rise. How are South Africans adopting this theme or are they at present adopting this theme? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that there's a massive trend towards ESG investing and particularly from your young investors. Um, I think we see, see it constantly across the globe in terms of one of the themes. And people are, investors are, are as, while, whilst financial returns are very important to them, I think the, 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 the impact that those investments have on the environment, the world as a whole, are in many situations as important. And that has shifted investors' expectations and their demands from investment managers. And I think what is important to understand is, you know, I think investors are starting to realize that not only are those sustainable investments, you know, important for them in terms of the legacy they, they, they leave, but even from, from a financial return perspective, you often find that those sustainable investments are companies that are better managed and will, over time, deliver better financial returns than those companies that are not sustainable. So you're getting a, a dual element in terms of that, but there's no doubt that there's a there's demand from investors, and as I say, particularly young investors, to leave a legacy that, that transcends not only a financial legacy, but far more than that. And that is creating a massive push towards sustainable investing and the ESG factors that you speak about. Yeah. Chris, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, we, we are increasingly incorporating ESG into our investment process, and it's based on a number of factors, some of which Mark's alluded to already. Um, but also importantly, if you look at performance of stocks that screen well from an ESG perspective. In emerging markets, they tend to outperform stocks that screen poorly. It's not as true in developed markets. And perhaps you could argue in developed markets, the regulatory framework acts as a screen by itself. And so perhaps ESG screening doesn't add as much. But in emerging market, it is certainly the case that if you were to have structured your portfolio along ESG considerations for the past few years, you would have materially outperformed. So you need to incorporate it because A, there's increasingly regulatory demand to incorporate it, but B, it's actually good for your clients to do so as well. And that is more than sufficient reason to get going and increasingly make sure that your investments are ESG compliant. Mark, volatility is on the rise. Geopolitical tensions are escalating. Politics are becoming more important to investments than ever before. How should clients respond to this heightened uh, risk-averse environment? No, I think, I think global volatility is absolutely here to stay and, and is on the rise. I think having said that, if you look a decade earlier, uh, post-global financial crisis 2010, many investors were fearful of a financial system that was unsustainable, um, gl global economic growth that was going to be muted, and investment returns that would be subscale. And yet we've seen a, a decade of unprecedented, incredible growth. Uh, I think the last 10 years, you've seen global growth of over 3% per annum every year for the last 10 years. And it's been a fantastic time to be an investor in most asset classes, and particularly risk assets. So, so despite the backdrop that we came into the the, the previous decade with, we had an incredible you know, re return from asset classes. I think going forward a, a, as investment managers, you know, we understand that returns are not going to be the same as they have been globally you know, for the next decade. And I, for clients, it's important to actually ensure that they sit with investment managers and ensure they have a, 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 a robust financial plan in place that Meets their, that looks, looks after their needs, their objectives, their goals, and, and a plan that meets those objectives. 
and ensure that they stay the course through through the volatility that happens because there are going to be times where it's going to be tough to stay the course and many investors will will probably want to exit or or buy into it you know we, the last quarter of 2018 was a, a really tough time for global markets, where global markets were probably down 15%. But if investors panicked and got out, they would have missed one of the best years of returns for investments. And it's critical for investors not to get caught perennially on the sidelines and never invest for fear of a potential recession. And likewise, for investors not to you know, look at returns that have been achieved and say, oh, I've got to be invested and, and, and invest a, a substantial amount of money in, into, at, at that stage. But rather for investors to stay true to their plan um, and actually have, a, a, as I said, a, a sound and robust plan to that. I think there's no doubt that, as I said, the coming years, the coming decade, you know, Deglobalization is going to be a theme. Trade wars, deglobalization. We've had an era of globalization, which has, you know, for the last number of decades, which has created incredible growth across the globe. That is probably coming to an end, and deglobalization and protectionist world and trade wars is going to be something we're going to have to face. So volatility is going to be there. Returns are probably not going to be the same as we have as we have seen over the last decade. But at the same time, it's critical for investors to stay the course, have a plan, and make sure that they. They, they, they don't panic um, at, the, at the wrong times. Ralph, is there a defining event in 2020 that's going to change or create some interesting developments in the political landscape? Well, uh, the ANC, they are going to have their NGC where they are going to evaluate what's happening uh, when it comes to policy. And I think that uh, that is a very important event because if the party use that platform to reflect on policies genuinely and become more practical and begin to understand that uh, it's about their core voters, it's not about someone out there trying to dictate what the party ought to do, but it's about the party actually building the economy. If, if, if they use that platform for that, it could actually turn things. I mean, if you look at South Africa's challenges, I, I, don't, I don't categorize them as severely structural. And they are not the challenge that one can say are spread across the society. Most of the challenges that we are talking about emanate from within the ANC. I mean, even the question of ESCOM. If you start saying within the ANC that, look, do not ponder to the, 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 the whims of the interest groups, unions, whoever has got tender, ESCOM and coal and so forth. Do not ponder. Look at what is in the bigger interest of the nation. And it, it, if you can solve this thing internally within the NC, you will have made inroads in dealing with this crisis that we are talking about. So this policy conference, if they use it properly, they might come out of it with a clear focus. But we know what happens. I've attended many of those policy conferences of the NC. Quite often they use it to gauge the level of factionalism, where I remember very well in 2012, they went to Galaga Estate, where they started talking about this whole idea of the second radical transformation and so forth. Instead of saying that, look, there is no opportunity to indulge here. We cannot indulge ideologically and so forth. Let's be practical. Let's deal with this issue. Let's get a critical mass. If they do that, things will be able to change. But I really doubt if they will yield to that. Chris, the first quarter of the year is going to have some key critical events for South Africa. The budget coming up, the potential outcome of Moody's rating. Um, how does this set South Africa up for the rest of 2020? Yeah, it is going to be critical in a number of aspects. Um, you can add to that the possibility of a rate cut and the view from the central bank as well. 
Um, and it matters for a number of reasons, like we've mentioned before. We need to see a government's ability to commit to controlling their expenditure plan. Is debt to GDP likely to come down to some point that's acceptable within the investment horizon? Um, are foreigners ever going to be interested in growth in South Africa? Are we going to get a handle on ESCOM, which also we should be able to find out by the first week of February or so, we'll get an indication on their plans for bringing in alternative energy supply. So it matters immensely, and in some ways it's not going to be a year of two halves, it's going to be a year of a quarter and three quarters. Great stuff. Mark, your final comments, or if you had to summarize your views for investors for 2020, what would that be? Yeah, as mentioned earlier, I think it's going to be a tougher environment for investors, particularly globally. Um, for, the, for the coming year and probably the coming few years. Not negative, but a, but a tougher environment in terms of that. I think we've got to look for high net worth investors. It's important to look at other asset classes, so maybe some alternative asset classes, some less liquid investments that will generate returns that are diversified and have a different profile to the traditional investors. Whilst I think it's critical to, as I said before, to stay the course with regard to your investment plan and investment strategy, I think it's also going to be critical to be nimble in terms of when there are opportunities in, in terms of that from an investment perspective. And I don't think it's going to be a situation where we have seen over the last number of years where you could buy and hold globally and, and, and deliver exceptional returns just by doing that. I think investors will have to be, you know, a little bit more nimble. So I think South Africa is an interesting space, as, as, as Chris and Ralph alluded to, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic that we see some positive development in the coming, in the coming quarter. Um, but and let's hope we get some of the tailwinds, you know, from the global macro position to be able to drive some of the returns and give SA investors uh, a decent return for the first time in a number of years. Thank you for listening to this Investic Focus podcast. If you found the discussion useful, please take a moment to rate this episode and subscribe to our channel wherever you get your podcasts. The content in Focus podcasts is for informational purposes only. The opinions featured are not to be considered as the opinions of Investec and do not constitute financial or other advice. Investec Wealth and Investment, a division of Investec Securities Proprietary Limited, is an authorized financial services provider and member of the JSC.